chapter 1, we're going to dive right in today, and I'll start by reading the passage with you, uh, just, a, just a few verses here, looking at verses 14 through 20, so about seven verses. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So with verse 14, we begin to see a transition in chapter 1. And I just want to point this out to you. Uh, Mark, our author now, is transitioning from the ministry of John the Baptist, who we had been studying up to this point, to the ministry of Jesus. He's transitioning from the old age of promise to the new age of fulfillment in the gospel. Even though we find his story recorded for us in the New Testament at the beginning of the gospel, and as I mentioned a couple of messages ago when we talked about John the Baptist, that it's the uh, the new thing, the beginning of the new thing that God is doing, John the Baptist is the final and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Now, why would I say that? Let's go to what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Uh, to do this, though, we need to consult one of the other Gospels. And so we'll look at what Matthew records Jesus saying about John the Baptist, just to put a, a capstone here on, on John the Baptist's ministry as we transition into the ministry of Jesus. But Jesus here gives John very high praise when he says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Uh, what higher praise could there possibly be from the Lord than that? John the Baptist was the greatest man uh, ever born, Jesus is saying. Yet the one, and then he finishes it with this, and this is a foretaste of what's to come as Jesus is going to launch this incredible newness that his ministry came to bring, and he, and he starts this thing called the church uh, that's going to grow from there. But he says, yet... Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. But now, uh, as we see here in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, the public ministry of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, is beginning. And Mark provides us with a summary of the content of Jesus' preaching. So let's look again at verse 14, and we'll just walk quickly through these seven verses this morning. Let's look actually at verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he says, repent 
and believe in the gospel. I want to just take a few minutes and break these two verses down with you. What is the content of his message? What's the content of Jesus Christ's message as he's proclaiming the gospel? Uh, well, the Greek word that we find here in the text is euangelion, and it, it is translated very simply gospel or, or good news. Euangelion, just so you see some English cognates here, is where we get our words evangelist, evangelism. There's no V sound in, in Greek, and so that's why you pronounce it euangelium instead of evangelium. I can't even say that. <laughs> but euangelium, we get the English word evangelism or evangelist. So Jesus came proclaiming the good news. But notice how it's framed there, how it's phrased there. His news, his message was God's good news. This is the good news of God that Jesus came to proclaim. And so in proclaiming the good news here, Jesus seems to have two objectives. First of all, he's informing his listeners that the kingdom has come. And second of all, he's challenging his listeners to respond to that good news. The good news is that the kingdom has come, and now you need to respond to it. And this is the message that Jesus came to bring. We're going to see this throughout the gospel of Mark, church. Let this be the first time I say it, but it certainly won't be the last. We will see that Jesus will leave the crowds. He will leave people who are flocking after him. And the reason he leaves them going to look for new folks is because all that those people are interested in are miracles and signs and wonders. And Jesus came to preach and proclaim the good news. And so he's constantly on the search throughout Mark's gospel. I'll repeat this so you don't have to have this part down just yet. You'll hear me say it many more times. But he's constantly on the search for people who are interested in more than just a miracle worker, but people who are interested in hearing and believing in and responding to the true gospel message that he came to proclaim. So first of all, let's break that down a little bit more. He informed them that the time for his kingdom had come. The kingdom is referenced throughout the Old Testament. And I just gave you a couple of verses there for your, for your uh, consideration this morning. But this is the idea of the kingdom of God is not something new with the New Testament. The kingdom is now coming in the gospel, in the New Testament, but it had been talked about throughout the Old Testament. So you have Psalm 47, 7 there for you, for God is the king of all the earth. In Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and the kingdom, and the kingdom rules over all. So why could Jesus then say to his listeners as he began to preach and he began his public ministry, why could Jesus then say that the kingdom was at hand, that the kingdom had come? Well, for a very simple reason, because he's the king and he happened to be standing right in front of them. The kingdom had come because the king had come. And so the king was ushering in the kingdom. Dr. William Lane talks about this and he writes, the kingdom of God is a distinctive component of redemptive history. It belongs to the God who comes and invades history in order to secure man's redemption. Aren't you glad, church, that the deists are wrong? 
You see, the doctrine of deism would say that there is an intelligent designer, there is a creator, but that creator created the cosmos, kicked it off into space, and now has left it alone since creation. That's getting there, getting towards truth. It's better than atheism, but it's certainly still not saving belief because deism does not define who that personal creator is, and deism does not define that that personal creator is the God of the Bible. And that is exactly not what God did. God did not create and then start the cosmos and then just let it run its course. But as Dr. Lane says here, it belongs to the God who comes and invades history in order to secure man's redemption. The emphasis falls upon God who is doing something and who will do something that radically affects men in their alienation and rebellion against himself. God did not have to choose to save us. We were the ones who were in rebellion. But by the grace and the love and the mercy of our Creator God, He chose to invade our creation in order to provide a way of redemption. Amen, church? And there's an incredible beauty to that. So first of all, Jesus informed His listeners that the kingdom had come. Second, we need to see, if I can get this to work, there we go. Second, we need to see that He challenged them to respond. He challenged them to respond. Now, how should they respond? How should the people listening to Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry respond to them? Jesus challenged them to do two things, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I I talked about this at length not too long ago, and I'm going to pick this back up again at the end of the message today with application, so I'll be very brief here on this. But Jesus challenged them to repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance, as you know, is from the Greek word metanoia. It's a change of mind about sin. I change my mind about my sin. The sin that I once loved, that I chased after, I now hate. And now my behavior changes as I turn from my sin. I believe. I trust in the good news. I turn from my sin and I turn to God. I completely depend on Jesus Christ to save me, knowing that I can't possibly save myself. And to try to save myself, to try to do this is a fool's errand. It's the ridiculousness of religion. Religion says that if I'm good enough, God might possibly accept me. That's foolish. That's absolutely foolish, and it sends people to hell. It's completely different than the gospel. The gospel said, says God accepts me because of Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. Amen? And so we don't have to try to be good enough to earn his approval, to earn his acceptance. He accepts us because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Dr. Mark Strauss, let me throw out a lifeline to him. He says, the kingdom is present not because God's authority is universally acknowledged. In other words, what Dr. Strauss is saying here is we can just look around us, and even today, 2,000 years after Jesus, we can look around us and see, hmm, this is the kingdom of God? What I'm living in, this doesn't seem like the kingdom of God. And, and what he's saying is, yeah, that's, that's our reality, that right now God's kingdom has not come in fullness. But look at what he writes. 
The kingdom is present not because God's authority is universally acknowledged, but because a right relationship with God is now available through God's agent of redemption, Jesus Christ. And Jesus' message is an invitation to repent and believe in the kingdom, to submit to God's authority, and so to enter the kingdom. It is an invitation to reorient a life focused on self. I hope this resonates with you because this is every single one of our stories right now. It's an invitation to reorient a life focused on self to a life focused on God. The kingdom is still future because Jesus is launching the plan that will bring about the final restoration of all things. And then we see in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus does not choose to do this alone. He could have. Jesus could have done his entire public ministry by himself, but instead he chooses to bring other people in to be a part of the great work of proclaiming the kingdom of God to assist him with this great mission of announcing the kingdom. And so Jesus goes fishing for fishermen. And that's what we find here in verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Just a couple of words very quickly about the Sea of Galilee, a little bit of uh, Bible history knowledge here for you to to tuck into your minds. But the Sea of Galilee, if you're not familiar, is an inland lake. It's about 14 miles long. It's about six miles wide. That's still true today. The Jordan River flows into it from the north, and it flows out of it from the south. And this body of water back in biblical times was a huge moneymaker. A lot of very thriving, growing businesses were built up along the Sea of Galilee. It was wonderful, especially for the fishing industry. And it was a moneymaker for both Israel and for the Roman Empire. One of the reasons, not the only one by far, but one of the reasons, church, the Israelites hated the Roman Empire, especially those who lived around the Sea of Galilee, is that when Rome invaded and occupied this whole region that you see on the screen for you there, they confiscated hundreds of boats from Israelite fishermen. And it's actually, this is all recorded by a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus who lived shortly after this. And he records that when the Roman Empire came in, they just took what they wanted. They were the occupier. And so they took hundreds of boats because they knew how valuable this inland lake is. The types of fish that were produced in there and, and the quantity of fish And these fish were exported to other countries around the known world. And so I tell you that to think that sometimes we might have this conception of Peter and Andrew and James and John as if they were poverty-stricken fishermen who had nothing better to do with their lives. Well, just another day. I mean, I I know there's that one story in there where they had a bad night fishing and Jesus helps them out, right? But probably not. These guys that Jesus is about to call most likely were fairly successful businessmen, especially Zebedee and his sons James and John, who also had hired men helping them with their fishing business. They probably were fairly successful businessmen when a rabbi from Nazareth calls out to them. 
And this is what he says to Peter and Andrew. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus first says this to Peter and Andrew, follow me. This is, um, he's, he's here calling them to be his disciples. And this is interesting to me too. He's calling out to them to be his students. When he does this, he breaks with tradition. He breaks with the tradition of how these relationships between rabbis and students were typically formed during this time. He calls out to these men. Rabbis never recruited students. This was not the custom or the tradition if you were a rabbi. You didn't walk around looking for people to be your students and call out to them. On the contrary, students sought out their rabbis. Dr. Daniel Aiken talks about this in his commentary on this passage, and he says, in the rabbinic schools of the day, the aspiring student sought out the respected rabbi. Further, the student's allegiance, don't miss this, was to the law, not to the teacher. Jesus' form of discipleship is fundamentally different. Jesus seeks them out, and their allegiance will be to him. And not only is he calling them to learn from them, don't miss this in the passage, but he's giving them a commission right out of the gate. And this was not tradition. Usually the student would be the student of a rabbi for a good long time before they ever had any role of responsibility or that they began to do any teaching. And right from the beginning, Jesus gives Peter and Andrew a commission. He says, come with me and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. And, and I want to communicate this to you, church, that Jesus is doing a lot more here than just offering a very clever play on words based on the occupation of Peter and Andrew. We might think, oh, yeah, we see what he's doing there. Yeah, they're fishermen, and so he, you know, he says, hey, you know, come with me, I'll make you fishers of men. Well, it's a little more than that. It's a little more than just a play on words. Peter and Andrew are being called by Jesus, as we know, to catch people. Jesus is calling them to help rescue sinful people from death and eternal death and into the kingdom of God. Dr. Ben Witherington talks about this, and he says, what Jesus seems to be asking these disciples to do is to rescue some in the face of the coming eschatological judgment, that that judgment that we talked about for all of last year in the book of Revelation. And Jesus is calling them to be a part of this. He says, lest all be lost or rescue some out of the clutches of the powers of darkness. And so Jesus calls Peter and Andrew to come and to be his disciples and to help him gather others to join them. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a, a minute when we get to application here. But let's first of all look at how do these guys respond? How do they respond? Look at verse 18. And immediately, there it is again. One of Mark's favorite great Greek words, euthus, we translate it immediately. You'll see this. I'll point this out as we go because Mark loves this word. And euthus, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Dr. Mark Strauss writes about this. It's on the screen for you. The kingdom of God is an urgent call. They immediately, they immediately left their nets and they immediately followed him. The kingdom of God is an urgent call and demands an absolute response. Peter and Andrew leave what they know 
to follow Jesus. My belief is that they leave probably a fairly prosperous business. They put it all aside. They don't know if they're going to return to it or not, but they just know they're going to follow Jesus. And then in verse 19, we see that Jesus had a a couple more fishermen to catch that day, a couple more brothers here. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were in their boat mending nets. And immediately, there it is again, Euthus, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. And and so much has been written about this encounter, and I'll just touch on a couple of things there. But James and John, again, immediately follow all prior claims to their dad, to the family business, to their boat and their business, right? All prior claims seem to lose their validity. I believe, personally, that their dad was not disappointed that day. I believe that Zebedee was pretty proud. Because of the way the Jewish educational system worked, not many boys who grew up in the Jewish educational system of this day got the chance to be a student of a rabbi. And now his sons had that opportunity. And so I think he was probably pretty happy that day that their that they left the business and their task was now to follow after Jesus Christ. The call to follow Christ, church, requires complete dedication to the mission. And this is what is is shown to us here in this passage. So who are James and John? I want to make sure you know who we're talking about here. I know most of the room you probably do, but just in case, the James that is spoken here Uh, is not the author of the book of James in the Bible. And and I've just found that that's sometimes confusing to Christians, that we think, oh, this James, James and John, this is who writes the book of James in the New Testament. No, that James is the brother of Jesus Christ. This James is actually one of the first martyrs in church history. Uh, Herod has this James put to death. And, and so that's the James that we're talking about when we talk about James and, and John. And, and I think it might be why he's mentioned first here in Mark chapter 1, because we think about James and John, and we think, oh, yeah, John is the more well-known one, right? But, but Mark says, hey, uh, there's James and his brother John. John gets second mention, right? And I think it might be that at this time when Mark is writing, James was probably held in very high esteem, among these two brothers as the one who had been executed for the faith. And, of course, we know John well. He's the author of the Gospel of John. Uh, There's three letters that he wrote in the New Testament, as well as that little book of Revelation that we spent over a year studying together, right? And so that's the John that's mentioned here. James and John, these two men, along with Peter, though, are going to be the three closest disciples to Jesus, They're going to have experiences with Christ, and we'll see this, that the others don't get to have. And so these really, these guys really come uh, compromise the the inner three. Church, don't miss the significance of this moment. And and here it is. I'm going to try to boil it down into a couple sentences for you. For all four of these men, Peter and Andrew, James and John, this was the moment that absolutely everything in their life changed. 
Everything changes at this moment for Peter and Andrew, James and John. Their lives are never, ever going to be the same again. Jesus calls to them, and they respond. It was the most significant decision that they would ever make in their life. So how should we apply the Word of God to our lives today? I have three suggestions to you. Now, some of you just looked at your phone and you're like, oh, Pastor Terry is going to be done early today. Don't get your hopes up. These three points of application are going to take just a little bit, so bear with me. But first of all, first of all, we need to understand, we need to understand the good news as Jesus preached it. We need to understand the gospel message as Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, presented the gospel message. And Jesus says, it's very simple, but he says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. And both of these are essential. Again, I know I talked about this a couple weeks back, but this is so important. It's so important for our own hearts and our own lives, as we'll see here in a minute. And it's also so important as we present the gospel to other people. Uh, Let me just uh, share what Dr. R.C. Sproul Uh, says on this as he challenges us to know and to communicate the whole gospel. And he says this, much of what passes for evangelism today concerns me. People say, if you want to have a personal relationship with Jesus, then come forward to the altar, raise your hand, sign a card or pray the sinner's prayer. All those techniques together add up to cheap grace. Because what is noticeably absent from these attempts to evangelize is any serious call to repentance. No one can enter the kingdom of God without repentance, without fleeing from sin and putting his trust in Christ alone. This is how our Lord himself did evangelism. And so Dr. Sproul here challenges us to know the whole gospel. It is, it certainly is, and he points us out, it certainly is to believe and to trust in Jesus for your salvation. But we can never forget the other half, the other essential half of the gospel, which is to repent, to turn from our sins, and to turn to Christ. Secondly, the second thing that I think we need to do here, there we go, is that uh, secondly, we need to consistently meditate on the good news. And again, I think this is so crucial for our growth, brothers and sisters, our growth in Christ, our spiritual formation. But we need to consistently meditate, to think about, to dwell on the gospel. And you might be one who is sitting here today and said, yep, yep, I I got that covered, Pastor. I checked that box. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I was in a VBS and and, and I did. I, I thought about the gospel. I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's right, and, and, I, and I did that, and I turned from my sin, and well, let me unpack this a little bit here for you, because we need to consistently throughout our walk with Christ meditate on the good news. Sadly, the gospel has often been communicated just like what I just described. It's been communicated as a prayer that you pray in order to get your spot reserved in heaven. When we're joking about it, we push that a little farther. We even call it things like fire insurance. Well, I've got my fire insurance. I'm good. I'm in. You know, my spot's reserved in heaven, right? So I've done this. I don't need to think about the gospel anymore. Church, we never, ever, we never, 
ever move beyond our need for the gospel. Ever. Ever. In heaven one day, we, we won't struggle with it anymore. In heaven one day, we will not, we won't have to remember to meditate on the gospel because sin will be purged out of us and it will be our constant joy to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and we will joyfully think about those truths. But we never ever move beyond our need for the gospel. And so we need to preach the gospel to ourselves throughout our lives in order to become spiritually mature in Christ. That simple gospel message that for so many of us in this room and listening online right now led to our conversion is what we continue to meditate on so that we grow mature in Christ. That is absolutely foundational to our faith. Yes, the gospel is absolutely essential to what we call our conversion. That point in time when you left the old life and came into the new life. When we respond to the gospel initially, brothers and sisters, so much changed in our lives. We move from death to eternal life. We move from bondage to freedom. We move from hell to heaven. We move from alienation with God to relationship with God. But the will of God for his children is that Christ would be formed within us, that we would be transformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ, that we would have the mind of Christ developed within us and that the fruit of the Holy Spirit would come out of our lives. And that's how that happens through meditation on the gospel. The gospel deepens us. And so the gospel is also absolutely essential to our sanctification. By continuing to meditate on it, we continue to change. It's what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15, when he says, my words have already changed you guys. The truths of Scripture is what transforms us into the image of Christ. And so you might ask, well, how do I do that? How do I preach the gospel to myself? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Let me tell you, since you're asking. I need to meditate on those beautiful truths that led to my conversion. And what are they? They're on the screen for you right now. First of all, God created me, loves me, and wants a relationship with me. Again, that's not just a message that's important to lead you to that point of conversion or salvation. That's a message that you need to meditate and dwell on every single day of your walk with Christ. Amen? That God loves us. He created us, and He wants relationship with us. And when we're, when we're far from Him, when we're not feeling close to Him as a Christ follower, that's not God's desire for us. He wants relationship with you. I mean, that's an amazing truth to me, that I'm absolutely loved by God. I mean, what possibly could be more important in life than that and knowing that? But second of all, my sin separates me from him. And again, that's not just a truth that leads us to the place of conversion and accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior, but I need to remember that when I choose to live in sin, when I choose to walk in it, 
when I choose to dwell in it, that my heart is hardened and that that decision keeps me from having a relationship with God. And so I need to regularly examine my life for sin. I, I need to look. Let me push this a little harder. I need to look, brothers and sisters, for the sin that's underneath that sin, what I'm trying to find meaning for in life or value in things that are other than Jesus Christ. Because whatever that is, whatever the sin is that's underneath the sin, the idol that I am seeking after, in that moment, that's truly my God. Because what I'm saying is Jesus Christ is not enough. I need this, the sin that's underneath the sin. And so I need to meditate on the truth about that idol in my life. And what is that truth? Here's the truth about every single idol represented in this room. Every single sin, brothers and sisters, that we continue to struggle with. The truth is that every single one of those idols will let us down. Every single one. They never deliver what they promise in the long run. They always let us down. It can't save us. It can't provide what I'm looking for in any kind of lasting way. The truth about all idols is that nothing but God fulfills the void in our lives. I think it was first, a couple other people have said it since and taken credit for it, but I think it was first Blaise Pascal, who was a philosopher and mathematician from many centuries ago, but also a committed follower of Christ, who says that, who said that every single person has a God-shaped void in their life. Only God fills that spot. And so if you try to fill that spot, and I'm talking about, I want to keep saying this because I feel like some of you might be putting it in the context of pre-conversion right now. As a Christ follower, if you try to fill that void in your heart with anything else other than God, it will let you down, it will disappoint you, and one day it will crumble to dust. And it keeps you from having true, authentic relationship with God. And so we need to meditate on that truth that idols can't save. My idol will always let me down, and it will never fill the void in my life. So praise be to God. And here's the, the third point of the gospel message. Praise be to God that Jesus died and rose again to save me. And that my response, and again, I'm talking about as a follower of Christ, my response to that beautiful message is repentance and belief. And so as a Christian who has allowed my heart to be led away by an idol, my appropriate response to the beautiful gospel message at work in my life is to turn from that sin, to turn from that idolatry, and to turn to Christ, to find that one true thing in Jesus Christ alone that really does fill the void in my life. Amen, church? And so this is how the gospel continues to transform us. And so I need to pray for the grace of repentance because I don't believe that I can muster it in myself. I don't believe that I can just kind of conjure it in my natural self. I know my Calvinism is showing right now for those of you who are theologically astute, but I believe that that's a work of grace, and so I need to pray for the grace of repentance. I want God to change my heart 
so that I hate the sin that I once loved, that by His grace, every day of my life, I want to trust that Jesus is the only real Savior, that Jesus is the only real Savior, and turn from my sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. And again, you might be tempted to say, yeah, but pastor, I did that years ago. Wonderful. Praise God. Praise God, friend, for your conversion. Now continue in it. Continue in it. Repentance and belief should be our daily bread as we walk through this life with Jesus Christ. Nothing wrong with the little discipleship books that a lot of you read, the daily bread, but you want to know what your true daily bread should be? Repentance and belief. Turn from your sin. Believe and trust in Jesus Christ every day. Meditate it on every day. Turning from the idol, turning to Christ. It's not just a one-time decision. It's not just praying a prayer once and then moving forward with life. Brothers and sisters, we need to live in this state of repentance and belief, continuing to flee our sin every day, continuing to believe. This commitment changes absolutely everything in our lives as I surrender my life to the great King who rightly demands complete and utter devotion from me. Keep repenting. Keep trusting. Well, let's review, and I'll give you that final point, and that last one's really quick. First of all, understand the good news as Jesus preached it. It's a message that demands us to respond by fleeing from sin and trusting in Jesus alone. Second of all, consistently meditate on that message. So first of all, get a clear picture of what the gospel is, the way Jesus preached it. Now meditate on it every day. And then the third and final, and again, this will be brief, but the third and final one is that we need to faithfully share the good news with other people who will then faithfully share the good news with others. That's our call. That's our commission. Just like Jesus went out that day and called fishermen to be fishers of men, we are, church, called to be fishers of people. Dr. William Lane writes about this, and he says, Jesus proclaims the kingdom not to give content, but to convey a summons. He stands at God's final word of address to man and man's last hour. Either a man submits to the summons of God or he chooses this world and its riches and honor. Dr. Lane makes it really basic. He takes a very you know lofty concept, brings it right down to earth for us. He says, basically, Jesus cries out to people, repent and believe the gospel, and your choice is either to repent and believe or to not. That's the option. That's the option. It was the option that's given to us. It's the option that we need to give to other people. We need to make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. This is our mission here at Fellowship. This is what our church is about, making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We do that through the context of our families, and we do that through the context of relationships with people in the world who will come to faith in Jesus Christ And then we understand, don't we, that when you lead someone to Christ and they believe in the gospel and they do repent and they put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ, church, please assure me, we understand that our work is not done with that person. Amen? Now we have the privilege, the joy to disciple that person, 
to be a spiritual parent to them and to help them to take steps to grow in the faith. This is our mission here at Fellowship. And, and it concerns me that I've met so many people throughout my life in churches, so many that would say that they're a disciple of Jesus, but they are not actively involved in making other disciples of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I'm not sure that's a possibility because the context of how discipleship is explained in the New Testament is it is someone who is actively involved in making other disciples. To be a disciple means that you make other disciples. And so as you search your own hearts with that, if you are not actively involved in kingdom work, helping to make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples then please let me ask you to take that before the Lord and consider how you can be, begin to be a part of that. Would you bow your head, please, and close your eyes? Worship team, come on up. I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to sing. But let's respond this morning to what God has given to us in His Word today. Heavenly Father, First of all, Father, I want to thank you for the beautiful gospel message. I want to thank you, Father, for the grace to respond to the good news, the good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and faith. We turn from our sin, and we turn to you, Jesus, knowing that you alone can save us. Father, thank you for creating us. Thank you for loving us. Thanking you, thank you, Lord, for wanting relationship with us. Thank you, God, for providing a way of salvation when we couldn't possibly save ourselves. Thank you, O great King, that your kingdom has come in part in our hearts, and we long for the day when it will come in fullness. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or come forward, church, but just in the quietness of your own heart as you think about the three points of application from this morning. First, do you need to embrace the whole gospel yourself? Have you prayed the prayer to trust in Christ, but you haven't turned from a habitual sin in your life? Let me ask you to realize and to know the whole gospel this morning. To lay that sin at the foot of the cross. To, to get help. To come ask other brothers and sisters here at this church to come alongside of you in accountability if that's what's necessary. But to embrace the full gospel and to leave, to flee that sin and to turn to Christ. Do you need to Take an action step today on the second point of application. Do you need to begin to meditate on the, the truths of the gospel daily? My promise to you is that there is nothing that will transform your thinking more than rehearsing the gospel message daily in your own heart, in your own life. You'll look at people differently. You'll look at yourself differently. And we'll stand in awe of the great salvation and work that God has done in us. Or third, do you need to be involved in making disciples? 
You've been hiding behind a tree while the battle's raging on around you. Let me just ask you to search the Holy Spirit on these three points of application, on these three opportunities to respond, and then to be willing to have the willingness in your heart to do whatever the Holy Spirit is leading you to do this morning. For the glory of God in your life, in our community, and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.